0: Better? Yes. Okay, I've had my Snickers, now I'm back to being me again. So, Miss America pageant. What do you want, dear? Um, peace on earth. Right? Don't we all? Do you remember being about eight years old and, and Christmas is coming and you're all excited and everybody's happy and there's cookies and the smells and, you know, but your parents are mad because of the news, right? And didn't at some point, didn't you ask your parents, why can't everybody just get along? What's the problem with peace on earth? Can't we just get along? You remember that? I sure remember. I'd like you to read with me Psalm 91. This is kind of an odd choice for our peace advent psalm, but we're going to unpack it and see what's in it. Let's throw that up there. We're just going to read it together. You got it? Okay. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fouler snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you take the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that your foot will not strike against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation that's a beautiful psalm isn't it yeah if only you know because again weren't you about eight when you kind of realized that promises get broken that hopes get dashed that it's not smart to want too much That it's safer to not be too involved? Because trouble is real. Psalm 91 can seem like a wonderful fantasy with a cherry on top, but a fantasy. I mean, after all, it says God will protect you from all kinds of evil. But if you're more than eight years old, all kinds of evil has happened to you. Hasn't it? You've had grief, you've had fear, you've had trouble, you've had hardship, you've had bewilderment and betrayal, all that stuff. So does my peace depend on what happens to me? I, I don't want to do any spoilers here, so if you haven't seen the movie Signs, don't bother. But again, if you want to see it, along with some of the many, many other problems with that movie, Uh, The plot revolves around a priest who's lost his faith because his wife died. And then the movie progresses and his son gets saved from a horrible peril. And so he gets his faith back. And everybody lives happily ever after. And my problem with that is what happens then when his daughter becomes a meth addict? Is he going to lose his faith again? You know, and then she has a grandchild and he gets his faith back and then the grandchild... Seriously? Seriously? Okay, so I want to compare Psalm 91 with Psalm 88. We're just going to back up a few psalms, because Psalm 88 is almost exactly the same length as Psalm 91, and there is not a happy verse in it. It is start to finish, oh God, why are you torturing me? It's like if Job wrote a psalm, it's Psalm 88, okay? So how can they both be true? They're both in the Bible. They're both inspired by God's Spirit. They're both true somehow. What's going on here? We know that even faithful believers suffer. They go out to the mission field and come home in a body bag. They get thrown into prison camps. They, you know, get cancer. They, they, stuff happens. So we got a few options here, either the psalmist, the person who wrote the psalm is stupid, that's an option, or the person who wrote this psalm hasn't read the Bible, possible, I suppose, not likely, or the third option is the psalmist is inspired by the Spirit of God himself to share a truth that feels too good to be true. And we are scared of those truths, aren't we? It's like looking at the sun. You, you want to see it, but you can't. Part of our problem, I think, is that we're expecting, when we talk about peace, we're talking amongst ourselves about the kind of peace the world offers. The peace that Miss America is imagining when she imagines everybody on earth just getting along. That's going to take more than an act of, of, well, never mind. (laughs) It's okay. So how many of us, and I know it's all of us who are old enough to drive a car, have been driving down the street, and you look in the rearview mirror, and you notice a cop following you? What goes through your mind? (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You start checking. (laughs) Am I speeding? Do I I have my licenses? Are my tires? Because we don't imagine that the cop is just minding his own business or that he's following us to say, hey, good work, or, you know, we start (laughs) checking our our conscience. Garrison Keillor has a a great line. He talks about how uh, when he puts on his stage show, everybody's out there and they're just all wowed and they're having fun and they're enjoying the music and it's all glitzy and fun and wonderful. And he says, that's great. He enjoys doing that. But he says, I always have the backstage view of myself. I know What's going on back here? All the stuff that's going wrong, all the shine that I don't have on the front side. And we have the backstage view of ourselves. Even those of us who make a kind of a life profession out of not noticing what's wrong with ourselves, still we know. It's back there. We know that we're not naturally, actually good. And because of that, we kind of have this low-level fear of God. And that because we're afraid of God, we have to be afraid of death. And because we're afraid of death, we kind of have to be afraid of each other because, face it, people are dangerous. Even your best friends, you know, they kind of will say the wrong thing occasionally and ouch. And so because we're afraid, we have to set our hearts on survival our physical survival, our emotional, psychological, ego survival. That's the world's version of peace, is taking care of all that stuff. The world's version of peace is get rich and learn how to manage your money. But you could lose your money. The world's version of peace is get healthy. Have appreciation and support from the people around you. But you could lose your health. We've all seen it happen. Take care of your social network. Lose those toxic people around you. You know, but that could go badly. Or the world's version of religion, surely that's gonna take care of it. The world's version of of religion is be forgiven, but not forgiving. Be nice, not truthful or brave or generous. Have faith in your faith, not in the blood of Jesus. Jesus sacrificed himself for you, so you shouldn't have to sacrifice anything. The world's version of religion is, I'm as good as other people, I've kept God's law, I have no real need for mercy. We're blinded by sin, we're drugged by the devil, and we imagine that all is well. Until God shows up, Everything is fine until God shows up. My mom, I I have never seen the movie Out of Africa, but my mom told me about a scene in it where they're all sleeping in their sort of safari tent village thing, and um, in the middle of the night, one of the servants comes rushing into the tent and says, Get up! Get up! God's here! And they all jump up, and what it is is the camp is on fire. And that's kind of what happens when God shows up. (laughs) See, the thing is, we want peace, but we can't find it. We can sing about peace on earth all we want, but until people look at each other and say peace unto you, ain't going to be no peace on earth. There's always war. There's always all kinds of evil between all kinds of people, even between us nice people. Peace is simply not available to those who choose evil instead of goodness. Well, who would do that? I mean, we didn't join the dark side. But peace is not available to those who choose the survival of their own ego and the safety of their own stuff over the needs of the people around them. An old-time preacher commentator, Matthew Henry, talks about unrepentant people reading the Bible. He says they are unquiet in their consciences. They do not like the Bible because it does not like them. It will not let them be comfortable in their sins. It is such an uneasy book to them. They put their heads upon it once, but it was like a pillow stuffed with thorns. And in the Old Testament, it states very clearly many, many times the wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people. And Jesus says, The world hates me. When we actually meet the overwhelming goodness and righteousness and holiness of God, what happens? It's not, Oh, joy. But, oh, no! Oh, no. Let's look at the Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah was a prophet. He was beginning his ministry. And he has a vision. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. How does Isaiah respond? Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You think that's just a terrifying place of being a prophet in the Old Testament? Let's look at Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Peter and his buds have been listening to Jesus preach on the beach. And they really like the way he talks about God. Everything he says about God inspires them and fills them with something. And at the end of his talking about God, Jesus gets in their boat and he says, push us out into deep water and now throw down your nets for a catch. And Simon asked her, Master, we worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. They signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and when they came and filled both boats, so full they began to sink. Weebo bow, wee do we do When Simon Peter saw this, this isn't just a guy talking about God. He fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. When we come up against the rightness and the goodness and the perfection and the holiness of God, all our stuff comes up and bites us. We cannot have peace with God until God does something. What does it take to receive peace from God? The world's peace is no good. It doesn't last. It won't stand the storm. True peace obviously has to come from God. People can't come to God because they're ashamed and they're afraid. So God has come to us. Let's look at John verse fourteen, chapter 14, verse 27. When Jesus is getting ready to leave his disciples, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give what the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and don't be afraid. That is good news. So we've been singing about peace on earth, goodwill towards men. The verse, the actual verse, is Luke chapter 2, verse 14. And it's not quite the way we remember it. The verse is glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Or a different translation, on earth peace to those men of good will. Or a different translation, peace to the people who please him. Or a different translation, Peace among those whom he favors. Remember I said a minute ago, peace cannot come to people who choose to survive their own egos. Who turn away from God. There's no place for peace to land on them. God brings peace to us, but we have to receive it in order to receive it. That's people who have a heart towards God, who are seeking His mercy, who do their best to act rightly, and who are humble towards God. Good news, folks. Those people have peace with God. Really have it. You have to want to be accepted on the side of goodness and rightness. You've got to want to be freed from evil. And if you do you're freed. God has come. He's brought peace. Even people who never heard of God or Jesus, I'm talking about Joe Pygmy and Jane Cavewoman, you know, people who just have never heard of God or Jesus. Even those people know that me first is evil when their neighbors do it. And their neighbors will tell them, it's evil even when you do it. People know that me first is not right. That's what Paul was talking about when he says our conscience witnesses against us. Peace cannot come to people who are devoted to themselves. So what does it take to receive peace? Remember, it talks about when Jesus began his ministry, it says several times... He went out and preached the good news, but it doesn't tell you what that is. All right, well here's what it is, here's the good news, repent, for the kingdom of God has come to you. Turn around and face me, here I am. That's the peace that God brings. Without that heart of brokenness and humility and sincere longing for goodness, no one can submit to Jesus or have peace with God. Jesus says, whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it in abundance. That's what he's talking about. Lose it. Give it up. Let it go. Throw it away. It's no good to you. Come to me. That's the peace. The peace... Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Here's the good news. Therefore, because of Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your conscience can rest easy. That is peace. That's peace worth having. But we got a problem. (laughs) Not with that peace. We just have a problem with ourselves. See, there's a veil There's a veil. Remember back in the old days before Jesus died, there was a veil between the priests and the Holy of Holies, the the throne of God, the mercy seat that Dan talked about last week. Remember when he showed us the picture of the ark? There was a veil. And that veil got torn when Christ died. Now we're welcome into God's mercy seat. And hasn't there been times in your life where there was still kind of a veil? You knew that you were okay with God, but The storms come, and death comes, and fear comes, and life happens, and you can't see through to God. There's like, you can't reach the mercy seat. Death comes in the death of a marriage, or a death in addiction, or the death of hopes and dreams, or the death of friendships and careers. Sometimes it seems like when we need God most, He's most absent. We can't find Him. We're like a ship driven before a storm. We feel lost in the darkness. In a time like that, you don't need a list of spiritual principles. In a time like that, you don't need a coach standing on shore going, Row harder! Pray harder! What you need is an anchor. Anchor. You need an anchor that's chained to an immovable piece. Even if you can't see where it's going, you can feel that it's there solid. Your immovable piece. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The writer of Hebrews says, We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf. Sometimes we can't see behind the curtain, but we can feel the anchor that he's back there on our side, upholding us, praying for us, interceding. He's there. We're going to sing, when I finish up here, our our closing hymn is going to be The Solid Rock, and I asked Deborah if we could sing that one, because... Edward Mole, who wrote that hymn, he ran up against the veil hard. And he writes the verse, When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on this unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Can't see it, but it holds anyway. So the peace we're talking about is not peace and quiet. It's not making nice. It's shalom. That wonderful, wonderful word. Shalom. Peace with God. God put our sins on Christ and crucified him. So that he could crucify our sins and make us clean in his sight. God died so that he could be with us. Shalom is peace in the world. God raised Christ from the dead, breaking the power of death. God raised Christ from the dead, breaking the power of death. He promises us resurrection because, look, who dies? Everybody. Everybody. Even Enoch gets sucked up into heaven, you know, without dying. I'm pretty sure that experience killed him. (laughs) You know, right? Everybody dies. Even God says, look, I'll die. God raised Christ from the dead, breaking the power of death. We all got to do it, and it has no power over us. Okay? So shalom is multidimensional, complete well-being, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. It flows out of all of our relationships being put right. Our relationship with God, our relationships with each other, and our relationships with ourselves. The hostility and war goes away because we're good with each other. We actually do sincerely look at everyone and say, peace be upon you, from me to you. Socially just relationships don't have to protest no more because, of course, we treat each other well. Why wouldn't we? And shalom within ourselves. Those who trust in the Lord and abide in him have inner security, profound psychological and emotional peace, quietness and confidence forever. Doesn't mean the drama is not going to happen to you. It means it won't rock your boat. Shalom was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's the future kingdom of God, the time when God himself comes and heals everything that's wrong with the world, was prophesied. That's shalom. That's peace on earth. Shalom is accomplished. God has reconciled us to himself by taking on himself the curse of sin so that everybody who's united to him by faith can receive his blessing of peace. On the cross, God himself carries our sin in the person of Jesus and puts it to death. Shalom has been experienced. It's possible now to have peace so deep that you can be contented in any circumstances. I can remember when I was a a kid I was doing writing lessons and something was going wrong and I was having a snit and my coach said, you stop it, you can die with a smile on your face if you put your mind to it. (laughs) She wasn't wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, we gotta look at trouble and peace. Why do we need that unshakable peace? because the world is going to try to shake us. Like, you know, life is trouble. Remember that old line from the, the Princess Bride, you know? Life is pain, anybody who tries to tell you otherwise is trying to sell you something. Yeah, life is trouble. Let's look at John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Because the promise of Psalm 91 is crazy. I mean, think back to the Psalm. If you say, if you say, the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. And we're tempted to kind of modernize that in our minds and think, okay, if no harm will overtake you, You will not be burned at the stake. You will not be beheaded by extremists. You will not get squished in an earthquake. You will not get flattened by a drunk driver. I won't let you drown or waste away or get cancer or tooth decay. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. I mean, think about it. All the terrors that Psalm 91 lists, kind of the punchline of each and every one of those terrors is death, isn't it? You know, the, the war, the pestilence, the, the snares, the traps, the, all of them, the punchline is death. Because God doesn't protect us from death, right? Satan rules the rule that he rules through the fear of death. That's how he manipulates us into giving up on God and trying to save ourselves. And that's why it's really important that absolutely everybody dies, including God. He's broken the power of death. It's just a thing that happens now, just sort of like, you know, birth happens. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The writer of Hebrews says, Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's a little New Testament convoluted sentences, so here's the living wheezy version. (laughs) Since his children are flesh and blood, he became flesh and blood himself, so that by dying in flesh and blood, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and save his children who have been slaves to the devil because of their fear of death. That is good news. And we need to be free of the fear of death, amen, because trouble. Paul, (laughs) I love Paul. In in Romans and 2 Corinthians, he goes on a war rant about trouble and the trouble he has been through. You can almost hear him singing in prison, you know. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, you know. I'm just going to whip through these. Um, Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 38, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He's met them all. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height or depth, or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Paul does not deny the drama. In 2 Corinthians, he gets a little more emotional about it. He says, I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped, times without number. I faced death again and again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me the 39 lashes. They stopped because 40 will kill you. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, which was supposed to kill him. Three times I was shipwrecked. Imagine surviving three airplane crashes. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea, I've traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people and from the Jews and the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities and in the deserts and on the seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. i worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and I've often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Anybody concerned for your kids? Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who's led astray that I don't burn with anger? And then a few chapters on, he goes on even more. But notice, as he's ranting about all his troubles, he makes a shift in the middle. See if you can hear this. In everything, we commend ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distress, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumult, in labor, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report. We're thought of as deceivers, yet we are true. We're thought of as unknown, yet we're well known. We're thought of as dying, and yet behold, we live. We're thought of as punished, and yet we're not put to death. We're thought of as sorrowful, yet we always rejoice. As poor, yet we make many rich as having nothing, yet possessing all things." You feel his anchor? He's going around the toilet bowl, but he doesn't go down. Just never goes down. Because we've got to make war for peace, amen? You've got to fight for it. A person who has peace with God is a person whose mind is at rest about his relationship with God. No worries there. Matthew Henry again. I love this guy. Every time I look up commentaries, I keep stumbling across him, and he's got these old archaic language, you know, but man, the dude knows what he's doing. He says, a repentant sinner, he's been a sinner, he's repented, he's received Christ, is beset again by the devil and will ask himself, how can God love me and bless me? But as he looks at Christ dying on the cross, buried and rising again, he says, I know he loves me. I cannot understand it, but I know he does. He's done that for me. It's not a mere sentiment or feeling. He has solid facts of history to prove that God loves him. God does not merely tell us that he loves us. He's given us the most amazing proof of it. Nothing is more wonderful than to know that God loves you. And no one can truly know that God loves him except in Jesus Christ and him crucified. John Newton wrote the hymn. Um, He says, in this hymn, he says, Approach, my soul, the mercy seat where Jesus answers prayers. There humbly fall before his feet, for none can perish there. Bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed, by wars without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place, that sheltered near thy side I may my fierce accuser face. And tell him thou hast died. It's what it takes to receive peace. Then there was a commentator. I was reading through that hymn. And a commentator on that hymn continues. I didn't catch his name. But this is about doing war for your peace. And this commentator points out. He says the devil will try to steal your peace by accusing you of your sins. What can I tell him? I can't tell him I'm a good person. I can't tell him about my past, God knows, or even my present. There's only one way to silence the devil. I can my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. The man who believes vaguely that God is love can't fight the devil that way, he cannot do so, for the devil will not listen to him. The man who says, I feel happy, will soon be made unhappy by the devil For he's more powerful than we are. There's only one thing that the devil can never answer, and that is the argument, the blood of Christ saves me. He will come back again, but you will always be able to silence him and thus continue in a state of peace. Friends, don't forget to fight for your peace. Don't fight the devil by looking at the devil. Fight him by looking at Jesus what gets your attention gets you eventually and my last quote from Graham Cook I've shared this with you before but we're going to do it again because it's a good one what about the times when we fall into sin I mean fall deeply into sin public sin sin Graham Cook says in Jesus God has dealt with your sin once and forever he's now dealing with your righteousness growing up into righteousness. Philippians chapter 4 verses 5 to 7, the Lord is near, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That constant prayer is what Jesus means by abiding in Him. Abide in me. Set up camp in me. Without connecting with God, prayer is just a magic ritual. We have to connect with God and abide with Him, share our hearts with Him, and share His heart. Because the devil's going to say, Are you good with God? The devil's going to say, No. Nah. But we can ask God, are we good? And receive his overwhelming hug. Too good even for words. Lord, over every head here, pour your living blood to cleanse us. Pour your clean water to declare the new life that you give us. Pour the sacred oil to anoint us for your work, amen.